0: One-Week Season What is going on, One-Week Season fam? Welcome to the week one 2023 edition of what is typically the Angles podcast. So this week, we are calling this the week one special. We are rolling. Well, actually, why are we? Why are we doing this? We're doing this because week one is so unique. So we're rolling some Inner circle components where we talk more deeply about strategy and DFS theory into the angles podcast where we typically take a look at the slate and go through the bottom up build. So if you're new here, real quickly, angles during the season. It's actually it's been Tuesdays in the past. Uh, it's moving to Wednesdays this year. So Wednesdays every week throughout the season, I walk through. Macro DFS strategy often through the lens of the week behind us or the week ahead of us. So, either taking topics from the week behind us and working through those from a strategy perspective to make us better DFS players, or looking at some of the early strategy elements on the week ahead of us, things that we can learn from and apply more broadly to our DFS play, but also use specifically that week. Angles podcast, we talk about the slate, we talk about some of the angles on the slate, the strategy angles from a more macro sense don't get as deep into the weeds as we do on the inner circle podcast and the winter circle podcast for inner circle members uh and then we do the bottom up build where you'll see what that is at the end of this show but since this is week 1 i wanted to do something unique pull these two shows together and what we're going to do is walk through each of the games on the slate and that's going to allow me to explore with a little bit more nuance my thoughts on these games, these teams, etc. than I was necessarily able to in my DFS interpretations. DFS interpretations being a written format kind of allow more for a look through one window, so to speak, and being able to talk about it allows us to hit all the different angles that we might be able to see on these different games and how that might fit into the slate. now. Some things I'm going to say in this podcast are going to be my takes. These are not necessarily exactly what's going to happen. Now, as we know, DFS is not a game of predicting what's going to happen. It's a game of understanding how to maximize your chances of a first place finish if a particular thing does happen. So some of these scenarios that I'll walk through now, again, knowing what's likely is to happen gives you a better shot at having scenarios that will play out the way you need them to more often than other scenarios. And making you more money over time. But just knowing what's likely to happen doesn't make you money in DFS. What makes you money in DFS is knowing how to capitalize on what happens when it does happen. And so uh, some of these are going to be thoughts you might disagree with. Some of them might be uh, things that you can balance into your own thoughts and say, Hey, I hadn't thought about this with this team or this thought or this angle. But again, this is not intended to be a prescription of players you should be playing or ways that you should be attacking the slate. At the same time, if you're new here, you'll learn that I'm pretty open and honest about how I plan to be attacking the slate and the angles that I'm seeing. So uh, you can use some of these in your own play this week. You can avoid some of these in your own play. With that, let's go ahead and dive into the first game. So a couple nights ago, I recorded now. I've been working through the main slate for week one for about five, six weeks now and messing around with practice builds and getting a feel for this slate. And then obviously went through game by game for my DFS interpretations. But uh, a couple nights ago, I went through game by game again, probably like the 30th time. It was kind of like, let me pin down my final thoughts. And I recorded my thoughts and then had those thoughts transcribed. And then I, last night I went through the transcription and pulled out my keynotes for every one of these games. So I'm going to use these keynotes, and this is basically the sharpest point that I will reach on most of these games where we had some extra time to prepare for week one. So Typically, my sharpest point comes on Saturday night in an NFL week, but it's kind of cool this week. With the extra time to prepare, we get to get my sharpest thoughts on Thursday and kind of get them out to you guys in this format. So again, this is not a prescription on who to play, but this is maybe some thoughts that will help you. And more specifically, there will be some strategy notes here that will help you become a better DFS player and help you maximize your chances of making money in week one and beyond. Last thing forgot to mention, Throw this baby on 1.5x speed or 2x speed. Okay, with that, let's get started. So, first game Browns and Bengals. So let's talk about the Browns. The Browns for a while have been this team with pieces that it just hasn't come together. The Browns for a while have been a defense that heading into the year, people have been like, oh, this could be a really good defense, and then it doesn't come together. So this offseason, they have continued to try to build on that side of the ball. Looks like Denzel Ward is going to miss this game at cornerback, but they brought in one Thornhill at safety, really good safety. They brought in Zadarius Smith as an extra pass rusher to complement Miles Garrett, and probably most importantly, they brought in Jim Schwartz to be the defensive coordinator. Jim Schwartz, an aggressive defensive coordinator, but a very good defensive coordinator. On the other side of the ball, on the Bengals side of, of the defense, we have Lou Anarumo calling the shot still. The Bengals are going to be, be missing wouzier at cornerback, so that hurts them a little bit, but they have a very game plan specific coach in Lou Anarumo, and that coach is very good at adjusting in game. So it's very hard for blow up games to occur in Bengals game environments because typically the Bengals have a defensive game plan that's going to be difficult for the opponent to crack. And then, so uh, one of the things we talked about recently is in a few spaces is games NFL games usually start slow because the defense has a game plan the offense has to enter the game gathering information so they are trying to figure out what is this defense trying to do to stop us on this particular week and the first couple series maybe there's some points scored but usually they're long drives that leads to point points at the end if there's a touchdown scored early early in the game it's not unusual for it to be a six minute seven minute seven and a half minute drive that eats up a bunch of the clock and then if it ends in a field goal all of a sudden you can look and you're like man this is a low scoring game this this is three nothing, and we're, we're 11 minutes into the first quarter. You know, the other team is still driving down the field with their first possession. And so, though early in the game, teams are typically just trying to gather information and understand what they want to do to attack on their next drive. And then that next drive, they gather more information, understand what, what they want to do to attack on their next drive. So, what happens when teams play the Bengals is they're gathering this information, but Anna Rumo is also gathering information and making significant adjustments of his own. And not to say that other defensive coordinators aren't making adjustments of their own throughout the game, but Anna Rumo does it at a more comprehensive level than most defensive coaches. So then the offense goes kind of back to, a, maybe not square one, but at least square two, square three, of trying to figure out again, okay, now how do we attack this defense? So again, not a lot of shootouts in Bengals games usually is really explosive offenses. All of that being said, the Browns have the pieces to be an explosive offense, and we know that the Bengals have the pieces to be an explosive offense. So I expect this game to be competitive. I expect this game to be hard fought. It could be low scoring. It could be high scoring. It will not be surprising if this is a game that you had to have this week. It won't be a shock on Sunday night if we look up and this game was 38 to 35 and was the game that was producing tournament winners. Now, again, it also won't be shocking if this game is 23 to 20. Should be a competitive game, could be low scoring, could be high scoring. Taking that information and tying it into the price tags on these players. I will be I will be betting on this game on some of my large field rosters. I probably won't be betting on this game on my 5-max and 3-max builds, which is not to say that it's a bad game to bet on on 5-max and 3-max rosters or even single entry rosters. It's just to say that's probably not the direction that I'm going to be going with my own rosters this week. But I will have maybe 10% of my rosters in large field play dedicated to this game, but very specifically to this game, not betting on this game being 28 to 24 or 27 to 21, but betting on this being a 38 to 35 game, betting on this being a shootout, betting on this being a game in which nine or 10 total touchdowns are scored, a game that would separate from the field. So I will have some games that stack up, some rosters that stack up this game, and then most of my other rosters will leave this game alone. Now, the price tags are low enough on David Njoku and on Elijah Moore and even on Amari Cooper that I might have a sprinkling of them away from this game environment. But players like Nick Chubb, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins... They are going to be confined to rosters of mine that that very specifically on this game being the game that you had to have on the weekend. So that's how I am approaching this Browns and Bengals game. Next up we have Texans and Ravens. It's been very interesting paying attention to, well, paying attention to all 32 teams and then paying attention to the Texans against the backdrop of the other 31 teams. So most teams come into the season, and there is a sense of optimism. If you pay attention to the Bucs coaches and the Bucs players, we on the outside might look at the Buccaneers as a below-average team, but they look at themselves as a team that's going to come out and surprise people this year. The Washington Commanders, people might look at them as a team with, this, I think, a win total of six and a half, and it's a question of whether or not they're over under on that. They look at themselves as a team that's going to come out and really surprise people. If you pay attention to the Texans, they don't have... That vibe from the coaching staff to Nick Casario, the GM, even on down to the players to an extent, the vibe that you get from this Texans team is very realistic for where they're at as an organization and really very sharp for where they're at as an organization. But the vibe is very much one of we are going to go out and every player on our team is going to play his best. And then we are going to build off of that the next week and the next week and continue to build on that throughout the season and continue to do our absolute best each week. And then next off season, we'll build on that. So the Texans are not a team that is coming into Baltimore saying, man, we're going to come in and surprise people. We're going to win this game. And obviously some of the players probably feel that way. The message in the locker room might be that, but the macro view of the coaching staff of the front office is let's bring in guys who are going to play hard, do their best, buy into what we're building and we can build off of that. The Texans are also likely to be missing Titus Howard this week, which is going to hurt their offensive line. Ravens have a good pass rush. Ravens will be without Marlon Humphrey, but how much does that really matter here against the Texans? Now, I had been kind of looking at this Ravens offense through one particular lens, and that was Todd Munkins coming in, and he wants to throw the ball more, and they want to... Run with Lamar less, certainly fewer designed runs with Lamar, and kind of spread the field more than these past Ravens teams have. All of which is true. The quarterback has talked about it, the players have talked about it, the coaches have talked about it. This is the plan for this season. At the same time, In week one, they're playing against a Texans team that was very bad against the run last year and gave up, I believe it was the fifth lowest passer rating in the NFL last year. So sometimes there are bad teams that give up poor fantasy numbers to opposing passing attacks simply because it's like, why would we waste time throwing against them? And then there are teams like the Texans that, uh, so I say this to say, you know, the Texans didn't give up big fantasy numbers last year to wide receivers, to quarterbacks, etc. But it wasn't just because teams had a lead and were running on the Texans. It was because the Texans were easy to run on and actually really difficult to pass off. So, swap Lovie Smith, a... Really good defensive mind for D'Amico Ryans and even better defensive mind. D'Amico Ryans is going to play some a lot of similar concepts on defense, so it won't be totally new to this Texans defense. And there's going to be a do your job and then flock to the ball when when somebody has the ball in their hands' mentality on this defense, so I could very much see the ravens you know as i 've gotten deeper into this week, recognizing that I was boxing myself into this thinking of hey, the ravens want to pass the ball more, and so how do I take advantage of that? You know I know the matchup isn't great, but you're going to pass the ball to realizing well they're still probably going to call the best game plan for this particular game. And then maybe the narrative coming out of week one is, hey, the Ravens are still not really a passing offense. They threw the ball 31 times or whatever it might be. And then the next week or the next week, we're able to take advantage of the fact that everyone has shifted too far to the other side, not understanding what went into them throwing the ball. So I will currently be planning to approach this week expecting the Ravens to call the sharpest game plan, the sharpest set of plays for this particular matchup, which means... I probably won't have much Ravens exposure on my own builds. Uh, I might have a little bit of J.K. Dobbins, although he's really expensive for a guy who isn't going to catch that many passes and is still going to give up a decent chunk of work out of the backfield to Gus Edwards. Uh, I may have a bit of Zay Flowers, as I talked about in DFS Interpretations this week. If there's a guy who's likely to hit, you know, the the Texans are going to try to take away downfield passing, so that doesn't fit well with Rashad Bateman. If there's a guy who's going to hit against his team, it's likeliest to be a guy who can do work with the ball in his hands because, again, Texans are going to try to force underneath passes, but they're also going to have that 49ers mentality you would imagine of once this guy has the ball, we want all 11 guys flying to him. Well, with a player like Zay Jones, that can potentially create bad angles to where if those tackles are missed, now there's open field available because everybody was flying to him and missed tackle and now he's separated from the pack. So Zay Zay Flowers is, I might have said Zay Jones, Zay Flowers is the one guy from here who I'm somewhat interested in, but probably have him on a very, very small percentage of my rosters, primarily in large field play. Next game is a very interesting one, Bucks and Vikings. So I was watching... The I was watching a press conference with Dave Canales the other day, the Bucks' new offensive coordinator. And he's a refreshingly straightforward guy. He's very comfortable with the media, and he kind of just shares his thoughts. And so they were asking him about Cade Otten and Cade Otten's development. As a player. And Canales spent some time talking about what a great job Cade Otten is doing and the things that he's improving at. And then he interrupted himself to say, You don't design plays for Cade Otten. he said he said you design plays for Mike Evans and then you design plays for Chris Godwin and everybody else on the team basically he said everybody else on the team gets targets based on the progressions from there and what the defense is doing from there and the ball kind of naturally gets spread out to everyone else from there so that's important that's an important thought to keep in mind when we're considering pieces from this buccaneers Team, That this is not a team, and and nor should they be, this is not a team that's saying, okay, how do we get Kate Otten the ball? How do we get Trey Palmer the ball? Which isn't to say that targets can't spill over to those guys, but they are very much designing this offense to say... How do we get Mike Evans the ball? How do we get Chris Godwin the ball? And then if those guys are covered, then who's the number three read in our progressions? Or what is the defense showing us and where do we go from there? Another thing that Canal has talked about was their backfield. And there's Rashad White starting, but there's also this sort of sense of uncertainty in the fantasy space, in the DFS space of okay, how long does Rashad White keep the job or does Rashad White really have the job? There's a lot of buzz in the in the Twitter comments among fantasy football enthusiasts about how Sean Tucker is going to take over the lead role for Tampa. Maybe he does eventually. But Canales was talking about basically, I think it's their running backs coach who'd been with the Cowboys, with Zeke and Pollard and had been with, I forget what other team he'd been with, but he was saying that, the difference between those teams and the Bucks was that those teams had two great backs. Whereas the Bucks in his words and his mind have one great back and then a bunch of good backs. And he said Chase Edmonds is good at blitz pickup and he's good in the passing game, and, and Keyshawn Vaughn and Sean Tucker, and then he threw Chase Edmonds in there. He said they're all good in first and second down situations, but we really only have one great back. And so from the offensive coordinator's mouth, from his mind, that's how they're viewing this backfield. So this is currently very much Rashad White's backfield, and this is very much a team that we should expect to have concentrated target distribution among Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, and then obviously Rashad White as well. So why spend so much time talking about the Bucs? Why spend so much time talking about a team quarterbacked by Baker Mayfield? Well, this team is playing the Vikings. The Vikings finished, I believe it was 27th in rush play rate last year. They throw the ball as much as almost any team in the league and teams skew toward the pass against the Bucs. The Vikings are also capable of putting up points against any defense. The Bucks are disciplined. They play tight zone coverage. They make it hard on you. You have to march the field. You have to be consistent. But... A, a team like the Vikings, the quarterback wide receiver combo like Kirk Cousins and Justin Jefferson, they're able to be consistent. They're able to find those small spots in the zone. They're able to march the field against a defense like the Bucs and occasionally hit those bigger downfield plays. The, these types of quarterback wide receiver combos, if you watch a full Vikings game, it is so rare that these long plays that Justin Jefferson gets are coming with Justin Jefferson wide open. They are coming with Justin Jefferson having a small amount of leverage against the coverage and Kirk Cousins seeing that and having the confidence to pull the trigger Put it in the spot that's best for his wide receiver and trust that his wide receiver will catch the ball. So even with tighter coverage, Justin Jefferson is capable of getting that leverage and commanding the ball from Kirk Cousins. So this is a very interesting spot because the Vikings could put up points. They could be putting up those points through the air, which means the scoring happens more quickly. And then the Bucs could be responding. This is a team that wants to be aggressive. This is a team that wants to come out and prove that they are a lot better than people think against a pretty bad Vikings defense. The Vikings have some pass rushing sh- juice with Daniil Hunter, but the the Bucs have Tristan Wirfs on the blind side now, and they'll be able to probably, uh, Daniil Hunter shifts to the other side for the Vikings a lot of the game, but the Bucs can shift some extra help over there. The Bucs are lost their two best corners. They brought in Brian Flores, who's going to be aggressive, but aggressive also means opportunities for big plays. And another thing that Canalis has talked about is that Baker's biggest, I'll say it like this, a lot of times, younger quarterbacks who get punched in the mouth early in their career, the reason why they never really develop is because they get so timid. Again, going back to the Cousins and Jefferson example, you watch NFL games, Guys aren't open the way that they're open in college. So so much of that NFL quarterback game is having that confidence to see this guy with a little bit of leverage and fire that ball in there. So these young guys who they take some interceptions, they make some mistakes, they play a little bit too much hero ball early in their career, they become very conservative quarterbacks as they move forward. Baker Mayfield's problem has essentially been the opposite. It is that he has not course-corrected to taking what the defense gives him. And so what Canales has talked about this offseason is working with Baker to understand that you don't have to be a hero every play. You want to take what's there, take what's there, take what's there, and then that hero opportunity shows up, and then you take that deep shot. Well, that plays into our favor because the biggest issue for Baker is an inability to sustain drives. Obviously, there's the occasional inaccuracy that shows up, but that inability to sustain drives because one in completion, all of a sudden now it's second and 10 you're behind the sticks one incompletion on second and seven and it's third and seven you're behind the sticks and so if you're not taking what the defense gives you and consistently setting up second and manageable third and manageable then these drives stall out before you're able to drive all the way down the field and score now we can't completely forget that this is the same bucks offense by and large that couldn't put up points last year with tom brady at quarterback so we don't want to go overboard in our thoughts on this bucks team but i highlight this team as one of my favorite large field options. Now that means that it'll be maybe 5%, 7% of my builds built around this Bucks offense having a really good game. And then some spillover from there of some Rashad White and, and probably most of my Mike Evans, Chris Godwin exposure will be attached to Baker Mayfield, but maybe a little bit of them off of there. And then back over to the Viking side again, expecting them to be throwing the ball. And if Jefferson's not having a big game, There should be a lot of passing volume and the price tags are relatively low on Jordan Addison, KJ Osborne, TJ Hawkinson. So if Jefferson is disappointing, if he's getting, say, 18 or fewer points, well, it's likely that two of these other three guys have a solid game or and maybe none of them really disappoint or that maybe one of them disappoints a little bit. One of them disappoints a lot, but one of them has a big game because there are points that are going to be available from completions, from yards, from touchdowns that if they're not going to Justin Jefferson, they're going somewhere else. And I don't expect Alexander Madison to have a big game in this spot against the bucks. And so again, looking at this passing attack is kind of where I want to go. So I will have a lot of Vikings exposure this week, kind of spread across my rosters where, you know, could be 30%, 40% Justin Jefferson, but then whatever I don't have of him, I might have an equal amount of exposure to these other three guys. So in other words, say 30% Justin Jefferson, and then another 30% of my rosters have one of Osborne, Addison, or Hawkinson. So again, betting on, what the bet is, is you're saying, I'm betting the Vikings offense has a good game, it comes through the air, and then I account for the different ways that that can happen to position myself for if that bet is right, a lot of my rosters are in position to benefit from that. Uh, and then again, some Bucks exposure on the other side, and then some rosters that say, hey, maybe I'm wrong about this Vikings offense in this spot. They don't end up having a good game. Next up, we have Panthers and Falcons. Really interesting spot to me. Really interesting because the Falcons are being talked about as... Uh, a strong playoff contender in the NFC this year. like, And not just an NFC South playoff contender, but like a 10-win team. A team that could go 10-7, and seven, be competitive, maybe even make the second round of the playoffs. Similar to what the Giants were last year, where just week in and week out, they're a tough opponent to play. Furthermore, they're probably going to put up points in this spot. Now, the Panthers brought in Ijiro Averro from the Broncos to be their defensive coordinator this year. Tremendous defensive coordinator. But they still don't have a scary defense. The Falcons last year, Tyler Algier, who is maybe not just a guy... He's solid. He's a good NFL runner, but he's not an elite NFL runner, and yet he rushed for 4.9 yards per carry last year. On a man-to-man basis, you wouldn't pull out the Falcons offensive line and say, this is the best offensive line in football, but you put them with Arthur Smith as the head coach in an Arthur Smith offense, and they were the top offensive line, one of the top offensive lines in football last year. Now they've added Bijan Robinson. And then on top of that, they have Drake London. They have Kyle Pitts. Desmond Ritter is not a bad quarterback and could continue to get better to a point where he's actually a guy we're talking about a couple years from now. We also can't forget that those Titans teams, when Arthur Smith was the offensive coordinator there, they were capable of putting up those 30, 35, 40-point games. It will not surprise me if the Falcons put up 30 points in this game. But when I look at that from a DFS perspective of how do I take advantage of that, it's really difficult for me to see the clear paths to taking advantage of it. If we run through the numbers for Bijan Robinson, again, understanding that if you're the Falcons, you are expecting to be a playoff team, you are in the building expecting to compete for a Super Bowl. So you're expecting to play 19-20 games. You have Bijan Robinson who's coming into his first NFL season. NFL season already significantly longer than a college season, and you have another good back in Tyler Algier, a guy who rushed for 4.9 yards a carry, a guy who went for 1,000 yards, over 1,000 yards in his rookie year. So we should expect Bijan Robinson to see, in my opinion, 18 to 22 carries. I have a hard time seeing him being a 25, 26 carry back in his first NFL game. If he sees 18 to 22 carries, catches three or four passes in a low passing attack offense, he's going to need multiple touchdowns. In most scenarios, in fact, let's work through these numbers. Let's say he rushes for 110 yards, great game. Let's say he catches three passes for 40 yards, great game. He gets the three yard, the three point bonus for a hundred yard rushing game. That puts him up to 21 DraftKings points before touchdowns. You you give him two touchdowns, and he's getting up to 33 DraftKings points, or basically four x his salary, or basically the score that you need. Now, if you get 26 points from him, you have him. You feel pretty good. If you get 30 points from him, you have him. You feel pretty good points, you have him, you feel pretty good. But if you don't have him, he's not killing you. He's not wrecking your shot at winning that week because there are going to be other high-priced guys who also put up 30 points and you can go to those guys. So the question then becomes, can Bijan Robinson bury you for not playing him? Can he put up 40 points? I have a harder time seeing the path to him putting up a 36, 38, 40 point game. So, because of that, I'm going to have a little bit of Bijan Robinson, but he doesn't stand out to me as a priority type of play. At the same time, I expect a lot of this offense to flow through the ground. We're on Thursday right now as I record this. Uh, Adam Thielen is missing practice today. I think he was limited yesterday. DJ Shark is now, they're saying that the team is trying to decide if they want to hold him off until week two so that they limit the risk of re injury to, I think it was a hamstring issue for him. So, This is a Panthers team pretty thin on weapons. So what are the chances of a Falcons team that fundamentally wants to build everything off of the ground game and wouldn't mind taking a lead and then just pounding the rock? It's hard to see Drake London similarly going for... A monster game. It's hard to see him going for seven catches for 110 yards and a touchdown to where it really hurts you for not having had him. It's hard to see Kyle Pitts having a monster game. So it's the sort of spot where the Falcons might run the ball 35 times and throw it 28 times. So 28 times isn't enough for these pass catchers to really ascend to that had to have it type level, but they're running the ball in this maybe split backfield where. Robinson's getting 20 carries and Algiers getting 15, something like that, right? There's still Cordero Patterson that's going to get a few touches, and so uh, this is not an. This is one of those weird spots where I look at it. And I'm like, man, I could see this offense scoring 30 points, and then it's like, how do I take advantage of that in DFS? And and I don't see very clear ways. And this is why we work through all the games because game environments are what produce the points, and then we also want to think about, okay, how does this game environment relate to the players available and the salaries where these players are available. On the other side of the ball, uh, so wrapping that side up, I will have some Bijan Robinson, probably not a lot. I don't expect to have much else from the Falcons on my builds this week. On the Panthers side, we just said Bijan Robinson, 18 to 22 carries, three or four catches you know who else probably gets 18 to 22 carries and three or four catches is Miles Sanders. Now, you guys know that I like Miles Sanders. We had a couple of huge weeks last year betting heavily on Miles Sanders. I had a couple other weeks where I went on the, down the Miles Sanders route and it didn't end up hitting and he got me, you know, 12 points or whatever it was. But Miles Sanders should have essentially the same workload, the same range of workload that I will be penciling in B. John Robinson for, and he's twenty six hundred less in salary, and will probably be lower. Owned. I'm very high on Miles Sanders this week. I'll have quite a bit of exposure to him because even if the Panthers are trailing, you have a rookie quarterback in his first game lacking pass catching weapons. The Panthers, in and uh, playing a Falcons team that is very happy to just keep the ball on the ground. The Panthers, the Falcons will pull away in this game, but they're not the type of team that wants to just go out and like score points, score points, score points. So it's not as if we're going to see the Panthers down 20 points halfway through the second quarter and the Panthers have to quickly be like okay you know we really do have to pass the ball more this is going to be one of those games where it's going to feel like it's in striking distance hey maybe the Falcons make a mistake maybe our defense forces a turnover in in their territory and we're able to score a touchdown and now it's tied up and now we're back within three right it's going to be sort of this striking distance type game more than likely for the Panthers which will allow them to say hey what's our best way to you know we know that we don't we're not set up well here without feeling without shark assuming those guys are out we know that we're not set up well here but how do we keep this game close how do we keep it competitive we want to just keep putting together drives make things as easy on Bryce Young as we possibly can And a lot of that's going to mean short passes where Miles Sanders will be involved. A lot of that will mean handing the ball off to Miles Sanders. So a guy I really like this week, whether Thielen and Jark play or not, I actually like him even more if those guys play just because it loosens up the defense a little bit. I still think he gets the same number Of touches, But either way, I think he's going to be central to this offense, to this game plan, and just feel like he is underpriced for his ceiling. If he doesn't hit this week and his price stays the same, his ownership stays down, he's a guy that I will continue looking for opportunities to play because there will be some big games coming from him this year. Next up, we have Arizona and Washington. This game is near and dear to my heart. So we've talked about this conflicting mashup of styles. Hilo and I had a show the other day where we talked about this idea of Ron Rivera typically likes to win games in more of a defensive-minded style. And yet Eric Bieniemy is coming over from Kansas City. He's an aggressive-minded coach. He wants to put points on the scoreboard and he wants to prove that he should land a head coaching job. So it's an interesting question. How do these two styles merge? Well, I came across a story a few days ago that I I can't believe I didn't come across last year. And it might answer this question for us a little bit. And that story is that it was not Ron Rivera's decision. I think it was week 18 that Sam Howell started last year. It was not Ron Rivera's decision to start or it was not his idea to start Sam Howell it was taylor heineke's idea that that washington start sam howell last year in whatever that last game of the season was that that sam howell started and it was based on the fact that sam howell was so good in practice and prepared so well and understood everything so well and seemed so ready. And Taylor Heinecke essentially said to them, you guys already know what you have in me. You need to see what you have in Sam Howell. And he said basically that he felt the only way that Ron Rivera was going to see Sam Howell was if Sam Howell started. Because... Ron Rivera doesn't pay attention to the offense during practice, apparently. Ron Rivera has made comments since that game about, man, if I knew how good Sam Howell was, I would have been playing him sooner. So this is a a guy who apparently delegates that offensive side of the ball. Now, this hasn't been outright said, but this is a guy who really very clearly had not seen Sam Howell in practice, didn't realize that Sam Howell had the potential to step in and actually be a guy who would be a useful piece for them. And it took one of the other quarterbacks voicing that opinion for Ron Rivera to say, oh, yeah, let's go ahead and give this guy the start. Let's see what we have in him. So from that standpoint, would it surprise us if Eric Biennemi has carte blanche to do what he wants with this offense? And then, given... Eric Bieniemy's situation, where he's been passed over for all these head coaching jobs, and then the narrative has been, well, yeah, he's the offensive coordinator of Kansas City, but Andy Reid is really the offensive coordinator, and Andy Reid's really calling the plays. And now Washington, now Washington, week one, all eyes are on the NFL, and Washington is playing an expansion-level team in the Arizona Cardinals. This is their softest matchup of the entire year. Would it be surprising if the Washington Commanders offense is one of the stories of the week coming out of week one? That's something that we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about that everywhere. We should be asking what could be the stories of the week coming out of week one. But for me, this is one of the spots that really stands out as a spot that could be one of the stories of the week coming out of week one. It will not surprise me if... Washington is up 24-0 and is still throwing the ball on their next drive. That's the sort of game that I expect, the the sort of way that I expect Washington to approach this game. Now, furthermore, Josh Dobbs looks like he's going to be starting for Arizona. Not a great quarterback, but not awful. The weapons that Arizona has, Rondell Moore, Greg Dorch, Marquise Brown— not not elite, not an elite trio, but not awful. It's not going to be surprising if Washington keeps this game competitive, uh, if Arizona keeps this game competitive. Washington is a seven-point favorite at home. I've actually wondered how they're only a seven-point favorite, and I thought, I, I don't typically bet games, but I thought, I might put a little chunk on Washington over seven points, but this is weeks of bets coming in and the line hasn't moved to a point beyond that. Seven points, right? So Washington keeps this game within seven points. Don't you think that... The, the Arizona keeps the game within seven points. Don't you think that Washington is going to continue to be aggressive on offense when they have the ball? So I think that people are kind of misreading this Washington offense situation. The implied team total for Washington is lower than it should be. This is a team with Jahan Dotson, with Curtis Samuel, with Terry McLaurin. Uh, I've had this concept in my mind of like, man, Brian Robinson kind of sucks. But the other night I was thinking, you know what, this guy was getting rave reviews all of training camp last year, then got shot in the leg, missed a few games, and came back and played the rest of the season. We probably haven't seen the real Brian Robinson yet. They have Antonio Gibson, who obviously is capable of being electric with the ball in his hands. So a lot of good weapons on this team, a really soft matchup, and a coach who has every reason to try to be aggressive in this spot. So the one thing that could really, uh, I'll say it like this, Sam Howell has the talent the arm strength, the mobility, the ability to put up a big game, especially in a matchup like this. So the one thing that can really slow down Washington is inconsistency, similar to what we talked about with Baker Mayfield. If the if Howell is not putting together drives, then the opportunity doesn't come together for as many points to be scored. But on the flip side, will Arizona be able to then sustain drives and keep the ball away from Washington. They will have a harder time doing that because of the lack of talent on their team and the talent on the Washington defense. And so again, swing the ball back over to the Washington side and they get another shot at it. So uh, this is an offense that I'm very high on this week that I'll have a lot of exposure to this week. They will be on my three max, five max type builds this week. Uh, I might have a little bit of Greg Dortch coming back. I might have a little bit of Rondell Moore coming back just saying, you know, if Washington's scoring a lot of points, that's more passing for Arizona. And one of these guys could catch enough passes Uh, make a big play, get involved in some way, and be a useful piece as well. Obviously, the Washington defense is a good play this week, going to be popular, uh, and that further enhances the power of the Washington offensive pieces if they have a big game, is that uh, people are less likely to be on them because they're already on that Washington defense. Next up on my list, Jags and Colts. Looking at narratives again, the Jags, another team that I could see being up by a lot and still passing on their next drive, the Jags. Went to the playoffs last year, had that great run down the stretch. They had that huge comeback against Justin Herbert and the Chargers in the wild card round. And then went and lost to Kansas City in a, I believe it was a competitive game, in the divisional round. There's MVP buzz around Trevor Lawrence. There's talk around this team of being, hey, this could be one of those teams that kind of surprises to dethrone Kansas City, to dethrone Cincinnati, to dethrone Buffalo, and be the kings of the AFC this year. They're playing a division opponent in week one. A division opponent. They they will have Shaq Leonard back at linebacker, so that helps their defense quite a bit. Not just because Leonard is really good, but also because he's basically the quarterback of that defense. They have Eberflus is a good defensive minded coach, but they don't really have the pieces on defense to slow down most opponents, let alone the Jacksonville Jags. And the Jags, in my opinion, will be very happy to have a lead and continue putting points on the scoreboard. I don't think that they will be slowing down and calling a more conservative type game until deeper into the fourth quarter if they have a big lead. And then, of course, the game could still be competitive at that point. They're continuing to be a little bit more aggressive. Although, again, if they have a lead of any sort with like seven minutes left, that's when you really start slowing things down and lose a little bit of volume there. But... The Jags have four really good weapons. They have Calvin Ridley. They have Christian Kirk. They have Zay Jones. They have Evan Ingram. But Rodney Thomas is an excellent coverage safety. He's going to be spending a lot of time on Evan Ingram. And so in my mind, that kind of condenses things down. Ingram will still get his targets, but that, you know, maybe puts him more in like the four to six target range as opposed to potentially getting up to seven, eight targets. So I'm taking him for my own rosters. I'm taking him out of the equation as the guy who I think could blow up from this offense. Now, I do that recognizing that he still could, that there are outlier scenarios in which he could. But if I can see a spot that potentially condenses the target tree on a team, then that means that the other players on that team are a little bit underpriced because now they're seeing... A little bit more of the target share based on this one guy kind of being neutralized by the matchup and these other three guys not being neutralized by their matchup in fact having good matchups so if you think most good quarterbacks go where where the defense tells them to go they go to where the obviously plays are designed for first read second read etc but they go where the defense tells them to go so if evan ingram is in tight coverage and the other three guys are not in tight coverage the ball is going to flow to these other three guys more often so I expect around 35 pass attempts for Trevor Lawrence. If five of those go to Evan Ingram, that leaves 30 targets available, right? Let's say that six of them go to running backs on a team that utilizes the backs uh, out of the backfield, but not heavily. And so now we're potentially looking at 24 available targets for Calvin Ridley, Zay Jones, and Christian Kirk. I am high on Calvin Ridley this year. Calvin Ridley is probably going to be popular in week one. Again, we don't care if a player is popular if they are sharp chalk. Doesn't mean you have to play them, but if they're sharp chalk, it's okay to play them. As long as they're put onto a roster, they can still get you to first place. As long as they're put onto a roster that is uniquely built, that's shedding other rosters on your way to the top. If you don't know what we're talking about when we say that, uh, it's obviously a deeper conversation than just this podcast uh, go to the courses section on the site there is a free course this year called playing for first in nfl dfs uh, zero to 100 and we go three hours deep into what we mean and it's pretty important course in terms of what we mean by playing for first place Uh, and then there's also a 101 to 200 course that's free to all inner circle members Uh, if you're not in inner circle and you don't want to join inner circle it's 39 bucks for that course so uh, really valuable stuff in terms of When we say playing for first place, what do we really mean? So, Calvin Ridley totally fine to play if you like him. He's sharp chalk doesn't mean he's definitely going to hit, but it means that he's underpriced relative to his expectations in this spot. I expect him to see around nine to eleven targets, maybe eight to eleven targets. I'll also have some Christian Kirk on my rosters. I'll have some Zay Jones. On my rosters, I'll have some Trevor Lawrence build. I'll probably have a Trevor Lawrence build on my five max rosters. Because again, you're looking at a good quarterback in a spot where they should be able to put points on an offense that is going to be willing to keep scoring points until we get to that kind of halfway through the fourth quarter type mark. So uh, some Calvin Ridley and then some spillover of like, okay, if Ridley's not hitting, then some Kirk, some Zay, one of these guys is probably hitting in this spot. Uh, I don't trust the workload to be large enough to justify the price tag on Travis Etienne, therefore requiring him to have some outlier production on his touch total, something he's capable of, but not something I'll be placing a heavy bet on myself. And then Tank Bigsby, same type of thing. He's still going to be the B back, the number two back. He's going to get touches. He's going to take away from Etienne, but probably not get enough touches on his own to justify the price tag, therefore requiring, requiring again outlier production on his end, on his touches. So uh, not guys that I'll be super heavy on this week. On the other side of the ball, Anthony Richardson is very interesting to me. And one of the things I want to bring up is something that Shane Steichen has talked about. So Shane Steichen, if you recall, was with Justin Herbert his rookie year. Obviously, Shane Steichen was with Jalen Hurts the last couple of years. And one of the things that Steichen has talked about is not creating game plans that are too overwhelming for a player early in their career finding the things that that player has down, finding the things that that player is already really good at and building the game plan around that and then continuing to build pieces into the game plan throughout the season so you continue to incorporate new areas where that player is improving or new concepts that that player is starting to get really comfortable with. But he wants to create a game plan where Anthony Richardson is able to go out there and just play. So what type of game plan would that be? It's probably a game plan that relies on a lot of Anthony Richardson running the ball and Anthony Richardson having easy reads. The Jags have good perimeter corners. They have good, they don't necessarily have a good pass rush. We'll have to see, but they might have a good pass rush. They have good pass rushing pieces in Trayvon Walker and Josh Allen. And so the Colts. what's going to suit them best is giving him is giving uh anthony richardson easy throws in the middle of the field now jelani woods is out at tight end Uh, alec pierce and michael Pittman on the perimeter so they'll get some looks but that's the tougher spot and either of those guys can hit like alec pierce especially at his price tag is interesting because we have to assume the colts will want to take a few downfield shots they're going to want you know If you haven't watched Anthony Richardson tape, the guy can flick the ball and it can go 70 yards downfield. So they're going to want to do that to create some space underneath for these shorter gimme passes underneath for the run game, etc. So if one of those downfield throws hits, then that's a big boon, especially on a guy like Alec Pierce, who's only 3,800. But... Tougher matchup. Those guys are very boom or bust this week. I do think that Josh Downs playing in the slot for the Colts is going to be a very interesting piece this week. The type of guy who might only get four to five targets, but it wouldn't be a total shock, especially if the Jags are putting up points, the Colts are having to pass a little bit more. It wouldn't be a total shock if he sees six to eight targets this week uh, as a slot receiver. Those points could pile up on a guy a lot of people won't be playing if he scores a touchdown. Then he ends up being a really nice piece. Anthony Richardson, meanwhile, the I've marked it down like this. His likeliest game here is rushing for 60 or 70 yards and throwing for maybe, say, 175. So assume one, two turnovers. We're in this 12 to 14 point range before touchdowns being scored. Well, if he accounts, if the Colts score two touchdowns, he's probably accounting for both of them. Maybe one passing and one on the ground, maybe two passing, maybe two on the ground. But that basically, if, if he scores two touchdowns and kind of gets in this range of production, that puts him in a 20 to 26 point range for scoring. So Anthony Richardson is actually a very interesting piece this week. And furthermore, he's going to have, one would assume, one, two games this season when he rushes for 100 yards. So, if that were to happen this week, all of a sudden he's pushing for a 30 pointer. Or if he were to count for three touchdowns. Now, these are, we're getting closer to outlier type stuff. But Anthony Richardson, it won't be surprising if he has a game this year where he accounts for three touchdowns. It won't be surprising if he has two games this year where he accounts for three touchdowns. So if those all line up, he rushes for 100 yards, he accounts for three touchdowns, he becomes a true slate winner. What's really cool is you don't even have to stack him because so much of what you're betting on are his legs and he could rush for 100 yards and rush for two touchdowns and only throw for 150, 175. Uh, Nobody's really producing much through the air, but also you can pair him with a guy like Alec Pierce who's really cheap, a guy like Josh Downs who is really cheap. So uh, I like this Colts side a lot. I'm playing around with the idea of Anthony Richardson on tighter builds as well. So Trevor Lawrence uh, is certainly in contention for me on tighter builds. And When I say tighter builds, when I say five max, three max, what I basically mean also is this guy could be on my, on my main roster. So anybody who could be on my five max could also be on my main roster. So I mean that for both quarterbacks in this game, just a really interesting spot to be thinking about this week. Next game is the Steelers uh, hosting the 49ers. So I marked this down. Alex Highsmith had 14 and a half sacks last year for the Steelers. TJ Watt had 18 and a half sacks. Cam Hayward had over 10 sacks coming up the middle. If you don't pay attention to sack totals around the league, a lot of teams don't have anybody with double digit sacks. This Pittsburgh defense is relentless. They're excellent. Uh, Patrick Peterson allowed a passer rating of 60 last year. Minka Fitzpatrick will be on George Kittle a lot. He's about as good as it gets in that regard. So this is not a game that's really standing out to me. And then we, we know that how good the San Francisco defense is. We know that the Steelers There's been talk this year of them unleashing Kenny Pickett, George Pickens a little bit more, being less conservative, but is this the game in which it makes sense to do it? And even if they try it in this game, do these guys end up significantly outperforming their salary? So from this game, currently, as of Thursday, and again, this is Thursday, but this is kind of typically where I'm at by Saturday. So this is pretty close to my final player pool. Uh, as of right now, I expect to have uh, maybe like 10% Debo Samuel just because I do feel like he's going to be priced at 65, dollars 6700 within a few weeks. He's 5500 right now. But... I don't feel confident that this is the week where he proves that he should be priced quite a bit higher. And so uh, some Debo Samuel at 5,500. I might have him on 10% to 15% of my rosters because I don't think he'll kill you. I think he'll have 11, 12 points in his bad game and he can get 30 plus points. He's capable of doing it at 5,500. So some Debo and that is the only exposure that I want to have in this game. Uh, obviously, could potentially have some defense from this game as well, but uh, defense is kind of the last piece I put together, and that comes together more as I build rosters. So uh, don't know about that yet, but on that game, that's where I'm at. Now, when I say that these are my takes, this is a good spot to remember that, this next game that we'll talk about, because there are different ways to look at this game. When we build rosters, so I, I was building out my... I've talked about this, but for any of you who have forgotten or who are newer to my content, now that I do 150 rosters, which started halfway through last year, and again, we're going to keep talking through this, so that any of you who are wanting to branch into even if it's 30 rosters, 40, 50, uh, this more like multiple rosters type approach, you'll understand how to do it in the sharpest manner possible, so that you're you're increasing your sample size of sharp play and therefore just bringing in profit more quickly. You know, on on my show with Pete Overzet the other day, I talked about DFS being like counting cards in Vegas, in that if you're counting cards in Vegas, it's not like you're winning Uh, at the blackjack table. It's not like that person is winning every hand. What it is, is that the edge tilts in their favor. So maybe instead of being, uh, you know, they win 48.5% of the time and the house wins 51.5% of the time, they flip that over. They win 51.5% of the time, the house wins 48.5% of the time. So across thousands of hands, they are guaranteed to be making money. So we can look at DFS the same way. If we're playing correctly, we have an edge. The edge tilts in our favor, but it's across thousands of rosters. So if you play... 150 rosters, it doesn't increase your chances of one roster winning, but it increases your sample size so that, or I should say any any individual one roster, the chances are not increased of it winning, but it multiplies your sample size by 150 compared to somebody who's playing one roster on that week. And so again, you just the the math plays into your favor at a more rapid rate. So, if any of you are wanting to get into that and understand how to do it in such a way that you're just still playing sharply and just increasing your sample size, we'll be talking about that quite a bit throughout the season. Again, the um the optimizer on OWS going live at halftime of the uh, Thursday night game tonight, free in week one. So you can start messing around with that. Uh, if you missed that in the Angles email, uh, by the way, really cool. We have a uh, optimizer developed by Caleb Nelson, a.k.a. Nickelback for Life, who's a total bink machine in DFS, MilliMaker Maker winner. Uh, all of his presets are in the uh, optimizer so he built this optimizer it's the optimizer that he's used for all of his 6k NBA caches and for his uh, millimaker win and all his big NFL caches uh, and then it's powered by FTN we've partnered with them to have this optimizer on OWS we'll have some of my presets and rules will get published to the opto each week on Saturday nights starting uh, week three so late Saturday night so when you come in early Sunday morning my like my pool and presets from the week some of those will be in there for you so you can balance my thoughts with yours uh will be a really cool thing for us to be able to do this year on ows so again uh free week one to just poke around on the opto and and use it and uh, just use it as an extra research tool even as a good way to go okay so as i'm building 150 rosters what i do is i'm essentially laying out, I'm going through all the games, I'm going through all the scenarios and singling out the players. And then I start laying out my allocations for the players. I'm not adding it up as I go. Uh, interestingly, so think about if you play a wide receiver and your flex on every roster, then you would have 400% of your roster spots would be wide receivers because you have the three wide receiver spots. Each of those would be 100% filled up with wideouts, And then the flex would be 100% filled up with wideouts. I was laying out my... Initial percentages last night, and again, not adding them up, just kind of saying, Okay, what do I want of this guy? what do I want of this guy based on general feel of what what I feel about those games and how I typically play uh, my wide receiver totals across all my wideouts came out to 404%. So almost almost exactly the uh, amount that I would need just playing wideouts in the flex across the board. Uh, my running back exposures came out to like 154%. So I still have to bump those up. My quarterback exposures came out to 120%. So I have to bump those down still. And then I'll still massage things and whatnot. But as I go through and I, and I go through all the games and I pull out the pieces and w- w- walk through all the scenarios and start kind of pinning down the percentages on these guys, the initial percentages... That helps me see who's going to be on my five max builds. I see that I want Anthony Richardson on 15 to 18% of my large field builds, and that tells me, well, I really want to get him on one of my five max builds. I see that I want 15% to 20% Trevor Lawrence. I see that I want 15 20% Sam Howell, and that tells me, hey, I want this guy on one of my five max builds. And this guy is going to be in contention for my main build. I see Miles Sanders at 40%, 30 to 40% running back build. And that tells me, hey, Miles Sanders is going to be on Two, two of my five max, maybe three of my five max, my Al Sanders is going to be in contention for my main build, maybe even just locked into my main build if he's my highest confidence running back. So that kind of starts making my decisions for me and allows me to feel confident in what my single entry roster is or what my five max, three max rosters look like because it's informed by what I want my, all my rosters to look like. So uh, this, as I'm going through that process, I'm also saying who can win me a tournament and who can bury me for not having played them because I don't want to miss out on the guys in large field play. And I don't want to miss out in my thoughts on the guys who could put up that score that puts the slate out of reach or that really puts you at a big disadvantage. So I sometimes am cutting out games like this Steelers 49ers game. There are other players besides Debo Samuel that you could go through that game and come toward yourself and, and want to play. The reason I'm not going toward them is because I'm not concerned about them burying me. So it's not to say that they're bad plays. It's not to say that there's no reason for other people to play them. But for for my approach and for what I'm seeing in that game and for how I'm looking at the whole slate, I'm, I'm not looking at that game and saying, okay, here's guys who could bury me. So I give all that background before we get into this Saints and Titans game. Because... This game could get out of hand. In fact, my notes said, (laughs) I said, it's hard to see Titans and Saints getting out of hand. I'm aware that it can happen. So I'm aware that it can happen but I'm willing to take the risk on my rosters this week that it's not going to happen because when I walk through all the scenarios in my head of how it happens, I'm just having to push really hard to hit those scenarios and they're coming up less frequently than scenarios in other spots. So if you are looking at this game differently, if you're looking at this game and saying, this game could get out of hand and I kind of think it's going to and I think this is how it happens, then build around it that way. You might have 15% of your rosters built around the Titans and Saints. For me, I will not have many, if any, built around this game. I will have some pieces from this game. But uh, the Saints side, the Titans side, not something that really stands out to me. So I think the Saints are likeliest to score three touchdowns. And I would assume that two or one will come through the air. It will be hard for these guys to put up monster games. And I don't think that any Titans players can bury me. That's what's in my notes. That's what I'm going to stick to for my own rosters. Again, other ways to build around this game. uh, That's the way I'm building around this game. So I'm looking at uh, maybe 5% to 8% Michael Thomas, uh, Chris Alave, again, uh, similar to Calvin Ridley. He's a guy who should be priced at 7,500, 7,700 within a handful of weeks. So Chris Alave at 6,500, um, Alave, Debo, Ridley, these are guys who I want to have exposure to this week and not overthink it just because I'm getting a discount on where I think they should be priced for their role, their talent, their offense, etc. cetera. So Chris Alave, I'm, I'll have maybe 12%, maybe 15%, and then I'll have a little bit of Jawan Johnson as well. Next up, we have Broncos and Raiders. So this is... This is a little narrative-driven. And yet, being a little narrative-driven isn't automatically a bad thing. In fact, sometimes the narrative is the sharpest thing you can pay attention to. After my DFS Lab show today with Keegan, we were talking about this spot. Maybe it was on the show. and, And I brought up the narrative last year with A.J. Brown going against the Titans. And A.J. Brown's big games were so unpredictable. And I spent that whole week, essentially I spent that whole week conveying a high level of confidence to you guys about This A.J. Brown narrative, like that this is the type of team that is going to want to get A.J. Brown the ball against his former team, that A.J. Brown felt disrespected by the Titans, that he was a building block for them and what they'd been putting together, these playoff teams that they'd been building, and he wants a new contract. And then they trade him right before the draft and then draft his replacement in the first round. You know, it's funny. is. Uh, Mike Vrabel, when he was with the Patriots, uh, before when he got he got traded to the Chiefs as part of the Matt Castle deal. And he had actually gone to Belichick, you know, Belichick's the GM. He'd gone to Belichick a few days before the trade and told Belichick that he wanted a new contract, essentially felt that that his old contract was outdated and that he deserved like the respect of a new contract and a little bit more money and a little bit more certainty. And a few days later, Belichick's like, you're out of here. You're getting traded, right? So, uh, Vrabel comes back and does the same thing to AJ Brown. Obviously AJ Brown at the, at the peak of his powers as opposed to Vrabel who was at the end of his career. And AJ Brown goes to Philadelphia, felt very disrespected players coach and Nick Sirianni. And I said all week, like, This is the week when A.J. Brown is the guy to play. This is the highest certainty we're going to get on A.J. Brown. And I played A.J. Brown that week, but I didn't play him on my main build. I maybe played him on one of my five max rosters. Like, I didn't go with my confidence on that narrative as much as I should have. Sure enough, he went out and put up a a huge game, and they were proactively getting the ball to him. Okay, so narrative. One of the things that has stood out to me about Sean Payton, I mentioned this in DFS Interpretations. I'll mention it again here. He had an interview with... Peter King. Well, we we used to always talk about how Sean Payton would go out of his way to get these records. And the records were very important to him. The passing records for Drew Brees were important to him. The other records were important to him in a way that is not typically the case for most coaches. Most coaches are very much like the stats don't matter. All we care about is the wins. Sean Payton was always different in the way that he approached things. And he had this interview recently with Peter King. And multiple times, out of context, without Peter King bringing it up or saying anything that necessarily led to this, Sean Payton initiated the fact, brought up the fact that the Saints led the NFL in touchdowns during his 16 years there, that no team scored more touchdowns than the Saints during those 16 years. Had nothing to do with this interview. It was important to Sean Payton to present those credentials about himself. Sean Payton now coming off of a year spent in the media. Sean Payton, one of the few coaches who really care about the noise and playing a bad defense at home this is a perfect spot for the Saints. Now, do I know that Russell Wilson is no longer broken? Absolutely not. I don't know. Do I know that Russell Wilson is going to have a good season? Absolutely not. I don't know. Maybe Russell Wilson is broken. Maybe Russell Wilson has a bad season. But the time to be wrong on that, the time, or I should say, the time to, to get burned by that is now. The time to get burned by that is now when we don't have information, when maybe on the flip side, Russell Wilson looks like 2020 Russell Wilson. Maybe on the flip side, Russell Wilson looks like first four or five games of 2021 Russell Wilson. Maybe Sean Payton, who again, it's easy to say, well, Sean Payton, Russ is a very different quarterback than Drew Brees and Sean Payton's used to you know, this this pocket passer who has pinpoint accuracy in the short areas of the field. But it's like Sean Payton adapts to his talent as much as any coach in the NFL. He has always built his offenses around the talent that he has. It's not like he had to go out and He didn't have a Camara before Camara. And then he got Camara and made Camara into a superstar because he knew how to leverage his skill set. So yes, it was Drew Brees for most of those years. And that's what we've seen Sean Payton working with. But Sean Payton is going to build an offense around Russell Wilson and what Russell Wilson does well and what Russell Wilson doesn't do well in the same way he does with any of his skill position players. So if Russ isn't broken, this is a great spot for Russ to come out and have a big game. This is a great spot for, similar to Washington, similar to a few other spots, for this to potentially be one of the stories of week one. Is, man, Russell Wilson is back. Sean Payton is back. Look what the Broncos did against the Raiders this week. Furthermore, nobody likes playing offensive pieces against the Broncos. And yet the Raiders have one of the most concentrated offenses in the NFL. Last year, Devonte Adams had a 36 point game against the Broncos last year. Josh Jacobs had a 37 point game against the Broncos last year. We detailed this throughout the season. It was For a long stretch, it was like 10 weeks in a row, one of Josh Jacobs or Devontae Adams scored 30 plus points. And oftentimes it was 35 plus points. So if you just played those two guys on every roster, you were guaranteed that half of your rosters were going to get this 30, 32, 35 plus point score. Now. This is not a week where, in a tough environment against the Broncos, new quarterback in Jimmy Garoppolo, a lot of negativity around this team. Chandler Jones doesn't want to play there anymore. Josh Jacobs held out. Devontae Adams was trying to get traded this offseason. Apparently, nobody wants to play for Josh McDaniels. Probably don't blame them. But maybe this is the same setup that we had last year maybe both these guys are continuing to produce so for me i'm going to be looking to be somewhat heavy on russell wilson i'm not going to be worried about marvin mims ownership if jerry judy is out i'm not going to be worried about marvin mims ownership because i will be my marvin mims rosters will have russ on them my marvin mims rosters will have sutton or dulcich on them we'll get to dulcich in a moment my marvin mims rosters will have Devonte or jacobs or maybe even jacoby myers on them and so Yes, Mims will probably be high-owned if Judy is out, but my ownership on Mims will be surrounded by a a greater bet on this game than other people are making, a more comprehensive bet than other people who are just playing Mims as a one-off are making, and I'll be taking full advantage of this. I'll also have some rosters without Mims that bet on Sutton and Dulcich putting up the points and Mims being left out and kind of hurting everybody who rostered him. I'll have some Javante Williams rosters. Javante Williams, very interesting. Sean Payton has talked about a minutes limit on Javante Williams. He has not talked about a touch limit on Javante Williams. And I like Raheem Mostert this week. I like Rashad White this week. I like, I actually like Khalil Herbert. We'll get to him in a little bit. I like some of these guys, other guys priced in this 5K range. But then you also realize, well, isn't Javante Williams probably going to get about the same workload as these other guys are going to get? Raheem Mostert isn't going to touch the ball 24 times and Javante Williams probably won't either. Raheem Mostert probably gets 16, 17 carries and a few catches. And that's basically what I'm seeing for Javante Williams. So uh, again, he's going to have to outperform his touches, but so are the other guys, most of the other guys priced around him, not Miles Sanders in my opinion, but most of the other guys priced around him will have to outperform their touches or in the case of Rashad White, Will potentially have to outperform his offense, right? Maybe he gets 22 touches, but potentially fewer touchdown opportunities for the Bucks than on some of these other teams. So uh, we'll have to outperform his offense. So uh, this whole Broncos offense is very interesting to me. Uh, Russ probably goes without saying will be on my tighter builds. I will have Broncos stacks uh, on. I will have at least one roster on my tighter builds on, on my five max that. Will be built fully around this Broncos offense with a bring back from the Raiders side. I will probably have 20% of my rosters, I'll have Josh Jacobs, 20% will have Devontae Adams, and a little bit will have Jacoby Myers. So the Dulcich situation, if Jerry Judy is out, then There's been all this talk about Dulcich is the number two tight end on this offense. Realistically, Adam Troutman is not a pass-catching tight end. He's a blocking tight end, and that's what Sean Payton wants to use him for. And then Dulcich will be used as the pass-catching tight end. Now, that means that there will be a lot of plays throughout the season when Dulcich is on the sidelines because they've got three wideouts and they've got Troutman in there to be the blocking tight end. But Dulcich will get playing time. More importantly, Dulcich is essentially... A big wide receiver, similar to Mike Goseki, a guy we'll talk about here in a little bit. So if Judy is out, they don't have Tim Patrick. They don't, I don't even, I think Kendall Hinton's hurt too. Not that he's somebody that they really want to try to get the ball to, right? But they're getting very thin in terms of pass catchers if Judy is out. So we would expect actually a lot of 12 personnel with Dulcich on the field. And I think that the Conversations around Dulcich over the last during draft season are going to lead to people being off of him this week and being hesitant to pull the trigger on him. So he becomes a very interesting piece in this as well. If Jerry Judy plays, it all kind of shifts, obviously, and and Judy becomes. Kind of the central target here, uh, quite a bit less Dulcich on my end, but still a little bit just in case. Uh, some And, and no Dulcich on my tighter builds, but large field, a little bit of Dulcich just in case. Um, still some Sutton, but scaled down from what it'll be. Still some Mims, but significantly scaled down from what it will be is how this uh, this spot will set up for me if Judy ends up playing. So in all, definitely quite a bit of exposure for me from this game, a spot that I, I'm totally fine being wrong on i'm totally fine if the broncos bomb because i know that that's in the cards as well but i know that if they have the big game that this is the opportunity to get it before everybody else starts paying attention to them before they become one of the big storylines around the nfl so we've got four games left we have eagles pats rams seahawks dolphins chargers and bears packers uh Two of these games are much lighter on information. So we'll get through these last four games, probably going to take slightly longer than I was anticipating. Uh, Get through these last four games, and then we'll hit the bottom up build really quickly and get you on your way. Uh, Thankfully, getting this out early in the week, so the little bit of extra time uh, and hopefully valuable information is worthwhile and you have the time available to consume this. Eagles and Patriots. It could be low scoring. It could be high scoring. That's what's at the top of my notes here. That's been my thought all along on this game. But it's a very interesting game. So I mentioned this in DFS interpretations, but it's just not in the nature of this Gerard Mayo, Steve Belichick defense to sit back in zone. Would that be the best way to face a running quarterback like Jalen Hurts? It would be. Would that be the best way to face a guy like A.J. Brown who's really dangerous against man coverage? It would be. And the Patriots aren't going to play man coverage every play, but they tend to play it at a higher rate than any other team in the NFL. They like to blitz. They like to put pressure on the opponent. And I would expect that to continue here. Now, we can't underestimate what a challenging environment Foxborough still is to play in. Every coach that goes in there talks about how hard it is to play there. Every player who goes in there talks about how hard it is to play there, or I should say every offensive player, every coach talking about the offense talks about how hard it is to go in there and play in Foxborough against this defense that's going to throw new things at you, that's going to force you to think on every single play, but You also have a running quarterback in Jalen Hurts. You have a guy in A.J. Brown who destroys man coverage. A guy in A.J. Brown who, if he catches it and that tackle is missed by the one guy covering him, he can take off for a 70-yard score. So, uh, And also you have Devin McCourty, who's been the anchor of this Patriots defense for what what was it, 14 years, is now retired. And so uh, a lot of changes on the back end as well that can certainly impact, you know, create these little mistakes that can lead to these big plays. On the flip side... The Patriots, you know, you got Bill O'Brien, not in my mind, an elite offensive coordinator as a, uh, you know, as a New Englander, not the guy that I'm most excited about, but certainly more excited about him than uh, I was about Matt Patricia and Joe Judge calling the shots for the Patriots. Uh, but Bill O'Brien is a an above average offensive coordinator. He's a perfectly competent offensive coordinator. He may have picked up some new components being in Alabama that maybe he didn't have before. You know, we've seen uh, Todd Munkin has certainly improved as an offensive coordinator from his time at Georgia, getting more of these college concepts. And uh, so, yeah, Bill O'Brien coming back. And Bill O'Brien knows how to run a two-tight end offense, which is important because the Patriots really don't seem to like Kendrick Bourne. Kendrick Bourne has been in the doghouse for the Patriots for the last year and a half plus. They, They don't seem to like Kendrick Bourne. They like Devontae Parker, and they brought in Juju Smith-Schuster. So what we should see from the Patriots, they brought in Mike Gusecki to compliment Hunter Henry. We should see a lot of 12 personnel, a lot of two tight end sets from the Patriots. What's interesting about this matchup is we know that the Eagles have Darius Slade, James Bradbury on the outside, perhaps the best cornerback, perimeter cornerback duo in the NFL. But both of the Eagles, inside linebackers, their safeties are first-time, full-time starters for this team. So this is the relative weakness of the Eagles defense is the middle of the field. The other relative weakness of the Eagles defense is the run. So again, we should expect the Patriots to run the ball, but when they throw it, we should expect Are they going to attack with Devontae Parker, who can't create separation, is going against Bradbury and Slay? Probably not. Now, Juju's going to move around. He's going to run some routes over the middle of the field. He'll get some looks. But they're going to attack primarily over the middle of the field when they're throwing the ball. So what I want to be looking at is Mike Gusecki first, and then Juju Smith-Schuster and Hunter Henry second, And I will have some attention on these guys. So Mike Gusecki, I want to talk about him real quickly. I might have mentioned this in DFS Interpretations. I've certainly mentioned this in a few other places. But Mike Gusecki, we remember what he did last year. What is easy to forget is the context of last year. So if you don't remember what he did last year, he had a disappointing season last year. The context of last year was Mike McDaniel came over to be the head coach of the Dolphins, came over from the 49ers, had George Kittle there. George Kittle, the best blocking tight end in the NFL, an elite blocking slash elite receiving tight end. And Mike McDaniel's offensive concepts were very much built around having a tight end like that. A tight end that was first and foremost a blocker. The elite receiving threat was secondary. Being a great blocker was first and foremost. So Mike McDaniel came over and the Dolphins waited a while on making this decision. If I remember correctly, they waited a while on making this decision to franchise tag Mike Gesecki because there was this question of like, man, this guy doesn't really seem like a fit for what we want to do, but he's too talented for us to let him go. So what do we do with Mike We We can't just let him go and sign with somebody else. Like he has too much talent as a pass catcher. So, okay, let's franchise tag him. Let's try to make this work. And a couple weeks into the season, and there was a big question during draft season last year was, is Mike Gusecki going to be a fit for this offense or is he going to be an absolute dud? And within a couple weeks of last season, it was apparent that he was not a fit for this offense, started spending a lot of time on the sidelines each game. So let's go back to the season that led to him getting franchise tagged. Let's go back to this 2021 year. Still not a good Dolphins team back then. And Mike Gasecki, week three, 18.6 DraftKings points. Week four, 16.7 DraftKings points. Week six, 22.5 DraftKings points. Week seven, 21.5 DraftKings points. This is a guy who is priced at 3,200 and is essentially going to be the, the number two receiver the number three receiver depending on the week for the Patriots this year. But on this particular week with Devontae Parker in the perimeter and this tough matchup, I'm looking at Mike Gusecki as the number two receiver. I'm looking at the Eagles as a team that could be putting up quite a few points against the Patriots or at the very least putting some pressure on the Patriots. And so uh, I like Mike Gusecki a lot this week. He's only 3,200. I think he's going to be low-owned. Even if he weren't going to be low-owned, he would be a player that I like. And again, ownership only matters so far. but. A player who's 3K and puts up 18 to 20 points is an automatic edge. It jumps over so many other players. So Mike Gusecki is a guy who I really really like this week from this game. Like I said, I'll have a little bit of juju. I'll have a little bit of Hunter Henry. Uh, I will have some Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts is in contention for tighter builds for me. Uh, Will probably be on a 5-max roster of mine. Mike Gusecki will definitely be on some of my tighter builds Uh, And uh, Jalen Hurts, I'll have him paired with uh, one pass catcher on each roster. So um, some A.J. Brown, some Devontae Smith, some Dallas Goddard. Probably half of my Hurts rosters will have A.J. Brown. The other half will have one of Smith or Goddard. Uh, And in terms of a Jalen Hurts tighter build a Jalen Hurts five max or three max or whatever probably be AJ Brown who's on there with Mike Gusecki coming back on the other side will not I won't be going to the Patriots backfield Uh, I expect them to have success running I expect them to focus on the run but I expect uh, Ramondre and Zeke to cannibalize each other's workload just enough that it's going to be really hard for either of them to basically provide a tournament winning score this week next up we have Rams and Seahawks so DK Metcalf had one game last year that would have helped win you a tournament, and it would have helped win you a tournament. It was a 38 pointer. It was in the playoffs. Uh, Then he had, uh, I believe it was, if I if I if I remember correctly from what I looked up the other day, uh, no other games over like 24 and a half points. He's 7K in salary. Tyler Lockett had two games last year that would have really helped you, uh, about 30 points. But again, that's just a little bit over 4X his salary. Wouldn't have totally buried you for not having had him. And that was it. And now it looks like Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to be healthy and playing in this game. If you're unfamiliar with him, he has a lot of Amon Ross, St. Brown, Cooper Cup uh, type skills to his game. Obviously, he's going to continue to develop over the next couple of years, but potential superstar two years from now. And he's going to be on the field as well, commanding targets, commanding attention. And we know from a very long track record in history. We have talked about it on OWS since the site started in 2018. Do not, back then it was Russ, it was do not play the Seattle passing attack. Do not play the Seattle passing attack unless you're playing players from the other side. Do not play the Seattle passing attack unless you are betting on this game shooting out fundamentally Pete Carroll talking about guys who don't care about the stats. All Pete Carroll cares about is the win. And in his mind, the way that he approaches football is he's happy having games close in the fourth quarter, knowing that his team is going to win in the fourth quarter. So he's not that interested in just quickly scoring and putting up points and trying to pull away from the opponent. He's just balancing the game and making sure that he has the edge heading into the fourth quarter, win it in the fourth quarter. We have a Rams team, still a bad offensive line. Cooper Cup out. Dan Jefferson, who's a mediocre number three receiver, is technically going to be their number one receiver this week. Puka Nakua, who has potential to develop into a really nice piece, but is a fifth round rookie in his first game, is going to be their number two receiver. This is not a good setup for the Rams. Now, there are different ways to build around this game and you can have fun playing around with those different ways to build around this game. The way I'm seeing it though is I don't see the Rams pushing the pace in this game. And if the Rams are not pushing the pace in this game, I do not want pieces from the Seattle passing attack. I will stick to the rule there was there was the let Russ Cook early 2021 stretch when Pete Carroll decided to experiment with letting Russ cook, decided to experiment with a different brand of ball. And that was the only stretch. It was like five games. That was the only stretch in Pete Carroll's entire tenure with Seattle when it would have made sense to play Seattle offensive passing pieces independent of game environment bets. So in other words, if you're not betting on the Rams, Pushing the scoreboard in this game, it doesn't make a lot of mathematical sense to bet on Seattle passing pieces having a big game. You have to understand how these teams like to win games, how they call games. So that would be an extreme outlier for the Seattle pass catching pieces to have tournament winning scores without the Rams Also putting up big scores. Given the Rams price tags, you should be betting on Rams pieces if you are betting on Seattle pieces. I don't want to be betting heavily on Rams pieces. I'll have a little bit of Puka Nakua. Uh, I probably won't have much, if any, of the Seattle backfield because Charbonnet is going to be taking some carries away from Kenneth Walker. It's just going to be really tough for either guy on a team that doesn't give a ton of passes to running backs. Tough for either guy to really justify the price tags. All right, last two games are Dolphins Chargers and Bears Packers. So Dolphins Chargers, if you have been around OWS long enough, you know that just personality wise, I am predisposed to be biased against the most popular game on the slate. So anything I say about Dolphins Chargers, take it with a grain of salt. Take it through that lens. My personality is to be predisposed to be biased against the most popular game on the slate. But at the price tags that the Chargers have, it's just in the price tags that the Dolphins have, what we really need is each team scoring four touchdowns. And it has the highest over-under on the slate at 51. But even 51, that's telling us 27 to 24, that's telling us a game where each team is scoring three touchdowns. At the price tags, each team needs to score four touchdowns. To kind of break down this math a little bit. If Justin Herbert threw four, 352 yards and three touchdowns, sorry352 um, a dyslexia moment, 325 yards and three touchdowns. That's a monster game. That would be accounting for all three of the touchdowns on the Chargers if this is a three-touchdown game. 325 and three touchdowns, that's 28 DraftKings points. That's just what he needs at his price tag. Now, he might run for 20 yards. He doesn't have the rib issue this year. So he's not going to have a Justin Herbert game, right? He's not going to rush for 70 yards. But he is in that Trevor Lawrence, Pat Mahomes type range where, you know, he occasionally pops in one and a half points, two and a half points on the ground. So he can get you up to 30 points. If he gets you that fourth touchdown pass, he can get you up to 34 points. But then we're talking about a monster game. We're talking about a four touchdown game. Then we're talking about the type of game where it makes sense to really be drilling into his pass catchers because one of them has a pretty good shot at getting two touchdowns. Or I should say there's a pretty good shot that one of his pass catchers ends up with two touchdowns. So that's how I'm looking at this game is I'm looking at this game as, yes, it's the highest total in the slate. Yes, it's a good game. It's a good game environment. But when we when we compare it to the price tags and the skill sets of the players, where you're not picking up the, the big rushing yards, you're not picking up rushing yards from Tua, you're not picking up big rushing yards from Herbert, it, it really tells us we do need this to be a game where both teams are topping 30 points the high total tells us that that can happen but recognize that the high total isn't that the high total just says this is a game that has that potential and then we have to weigh how likely is that potential against how likely will the field think the potential is in this spot so on the flip side drawing away from this game you have vic fangio Taking over this Dolphins defense, you know, they can't be, we can't, we don't want to underrate the the impact that Vic Fangio can have on a defense. And then Brandon Staley, you know, I don't think a great head coach personally, but a really good defensive coach. Uh, Only had Bosa for five games last year, so now he has Bosa and Mack together really for the first time. JC Jackson is healthy at corner. Derwin James is healthy. So just a lot of good pieces, a lot of superstar pieces on this Chargers defense. And I expect points to be scored. I expect both offenses to be good, look good in this game. But do I expect each side to score Four plus touchdowns. That's the question I have to ask. So I will have in large field play some some Tua double stacks with a Chargers bring back. I will have uh fewer, but some Tua singles. So if I have 10 Tua double stacks, Tua Waddle Hill, then I might have two additional rosters with Tua and Tyreek. Two additional rosters with Tua and Waddle. But primarily focus on that double stack because I'm betting on this game going big that would be the bet that I would want to place on this game especially because there's some ch- some cheaper passing attacks that I really like and I think can perform at a pretty high level this week they can outperform their salary so I need these guys to outperform their salaries on the charger side same thing however many 2 rosters I have I'll probably have the same number of herbert rosters and build around those with double stacks. Now, this could be the rare week that I have some Keenan Allen, it will be like Keenan Allen plus Gerald Everett or Keenan Allen plus Mike Williams or however it might look, but I will have two pieces on most of my Herbert rosters and maybe a few rosters because we've talked about this in the past. It it's unusual but it actually ends up being optimal sometimes, and that's Herbert plus Eckler plus no other pass catchers from the Chargers. So I'll have a little bit of that. I do not expect to have this game featured on my tighter builds, and I don't expect to have many players from this game, except Raheem Mostert maybe a little bit of Austin Eckler, away from game-focused builds. So that's how I'm personally looking at this game, how I will be attacking this game. Obviously, you can find... Alternate perspectives around the industry on this game, because the over-under tells us, hey, this is the best game on the slate. But when I I kind of look at everything and what's my clearest path to a first place finish this week, this game is just not standing out as something that I want to have on my tighter builds and on larger field play. I'm going to have some, I'll be underweight the field and I'll be building uniquely around those rosters in the way I stack it up or in what I do in other spots on those rosters. Lastly, we have Bears and Packers. Still a lot of uncertainty in this game. Khalil Herbert, you know, he's interesting because Dante Foreman's there and Rashaun Johnson's there, but Khalil Herbert still is probably getting 16 to 18 touches. So as as I said earlier, that's kind of in the same range we expect for Raheem Mostert, the same range we expect for Javante Williams, a little bit lower than what Rashad White might get. But maybe a better spot than what Rashad White will have Uh, fewer touches than I think Miles Sanders will get, Uh, but um, kind of puts him into that mix. So Khalil Herbert, it's interesting. We know that he can hit for long runs. We can, he can score touchdowns. So a guy that I want to keep in mind this week, then on the, and that's really all that I want on the, you know, good defense, high price tag on Justin Fields, high price tag on, on DJ Moore relative to, my expectations for him. High price tag on Cole Komet relative to my expectations for him. So uh, not the spot where I personally want to be attacking the Bears. Uh, certainly there are pictures you could paint of the Bears providing tournament winners, but that's not the, re- the direction I'm going on my rosters this week. Packers side is very interesting. What do you do? What do you do? It's Jordan Love's first game. And by what do you do, I mean, what, what do you do if you're the head coach? Uh, looks like Romeo Dobbs is going to end up missing I'm actually just looking this up now. It looks like Romeo Dobbs practiced on Thursday, but that's after missing two weeks with a hamstring injury. So still, you know, somewhat low confidence in my mind that he plays. And Christian Watson has now missed back-to-back practices with a hamstring injury of his own. And so you're Matt LaFleur. You've got Jordan Love starting his first game. And potentially your number one wide receiver is rookie second rounder Jaden Reed. And potentially, your number two, quote, wide receiver or pass catcher is rookie tight end Luke Musgrave. Now, the price tags on these guys are very attractive. And if we're realistic in a Packers offense that is still going, I'll say it like this, these are the only two guys we can think of. The Packers are still going to spread targets around to a bunch of different guys. They're probably going to try to throw the ball 25 times. So it's not like we say Jaden Reed's going to get 10 targets. Luke Musgrave's going to get 10 targets. But each guy should be in that 5-7 to target range, which is a nice range at their price tags. They certainly both have upside. It wouldn't be a shock if one of them got 8 targets. Uh, It would be a shock if either of them went above that mark. In fact, to put that in context, Dobbs had four games last year above six targets. Christian Watson had three games last year above six targets that was with Aaron Rodgers, And, and, you know, those were the, they were the number one and two, uh, pass catch catching weapons. Uh, Watson had zero games over eight targets. Dobbs had one game over eight targets and zero games, the double digit target. So again, we should be realistic about what the expectations are here. The expectations are really four to seven targets for these guys. Uh, but both guys are interesting in this spot, just from a standpoint, of available opportunity and price tag. But we should expect the uh, the Packers to be kind of keeping the ball on the ground, to be somewhat conservative, to try to win this game in the way that they like to win games, the way that Matt LaFleur would prefer to win games, which is kind of take that lead, play defense, play smart, don't turn the ball over, bleed the clock. So that's how we should expect them to play this game. There will be some passing attempts available, but not a ton of volume available through the pass game. So uh, I'll have a little bit of Jaden Reed. I'll have a little bit of Musgrave. I'll have a little bit of Aaron Jones not a ton because you know he's always a risk for a 14 point game an 18 point game but he has that upside to hit for a big game at 6,500 he has the upside to blow past that salary multiplier and go for 30 32 35 points so a little bit of uh of Aaron Jones and that's about it from this game so that wraps up What I'm looking at from all the games this weekend, again, obviously we spent a lot of time on that, but I think it's valuable refresher on all these teams it's valuable refresher on how we think through a slate and it also allowed us to get for for those of you who are interested really deep into my own thoughts now we're not into picks at ows because again we're into figuring out how to win a particular slate And a lot of times that's more about how we put our rosters together than about the players we're playing but the players we're playing does matter and i recognize that Generally speaking, I'm going to be sharp on picks, and so uh, that's a, an ability and an opportunity for me to kind of share with you what I'm seeing from a, from a more picks-based perspective as well. Not that we don't get to that in the player grid, but this allows a little bit more nuance and discussion around all of those. Okay, last thing we're going to do is the bottom-up build. So if you are new here, the bottom-up build, we build with a salary cap of 44k kind of allows us to see some of the value available on the slate but we also like to talk about dfs strategy while we do this and talk about how we would look to win a tournament so it's not just about finding the cheapest players but it's also about uh, finding ways to fit in maybe some higher priced players or some guys who uh, have high ceiling that other people might not be thinking of or put together these rosters in unique ways so we actually We'll be spending quite a bit less time on the bottom-up build than normal. Normally, it's, I don't know, 15 minutes and kind of walk through all these thoughts. But we've walked through all these thoughts as we walked through the game. So uh, I'm going to actually just run out the whole roster for you. And then I'll hit on a few points on it. So the whole roster, start with Sam Howell and Curtis Samuel. Decided not to have a Washington bring back on this one. Uh, Have Marvin Mims as my cheap piece to kind of unlock some other pieces on the roster and brought back Josh Jacobs at 7700 so Talking about bottom-up build, 44K in salary spent. Not a lot of people would be, again, we're talking about how would we win a tournament if everybody had 44K in salary. We actually have a bottom-up build contest as well linked in my player grid, which you'll find in the scroll at halftime of the the, the Chiefs and Lions game, and it will be in the scroll the rest of the weekend. Bottom-up build where we have cool prizes, first place, free money, free courses, uh, et cetera. And the... Um, You build a roster, it's free to enter and and, and use 44K or less in salary cap. So uh, not a lot of people spending 44K in salary would be fitting Josh Jacobs. Not a lot of people spending 50K in salary are probably going out of their way this week to play Josh Jacobs. So a really fun way to get funky with that, with the Marvin Mims and Josh Jacobs pairing. And then from there, there's really a lot of just favorite values on this roster. So I have Miles Sanders at 5,600. I have Chris Alave and Calvin Ridley at 6,500. I have Mike Gusecki at 3,200. And I put in the Texans defense at 2,100. Texans defense, one that really, really goes overlooked. Let me quickly go through their game logs from last year down the stretch. I'll start from week 18 and move backward. Week 18, 14 DraftKings points. Week 17, six points. Week 16, 11 points. Week 15 against Kansas City, five points. Week 14 against Dallas, seven points. Week 13 against Cleveland, eight points. Week 12 against the Miami Dolphins, seven points. People really underestimate this Texans defense. As we talked about, really a a top secondary. They're decent in pass rush and Not a great spot against a good Ravens offense, but also Lamar Jackson can take sacks. Lamar Jackson can make mistakes. And at 2100, this is a very interesting spot to go, especially when... A lot of people will be paying $2,800 for the Washington defense, but we have Sam Howell and Curtis Samuel on this spot and maybe betting a little bit less on the Washington defense having a big game, so going all the way down to the Texans. That's really the only spot that requires any explanation here. So I want to talk real quickly about, again, not a ton of strategy on this roster, but that's okay. We've covered a lot of strategy throughout the rest of this podcast, but this is a roster that I actually feel like I'm spending 50k in salary, because let me see if I can, if I can nail this exactly right the way I did earlier in my head, I I tallied it up and it actually came out to exactly 6,300, which is the amount of salary we have left over. Um, Sam Howell's 4900. I think he should be about 5900 a few weeks from now. Uh, Josh Jacobs, we'll leave him at 7700. Miles Sanders, 5600. I think he should be about 61 or 6200. So that's 1600 in salary that we've saved. Chris Olave, I think he'll be about 7700. So that's 2800 in salary we've saved. Uh, Calvin Ridley, I'll say 7400. So what does that put us at? 3700 in salary saved. Curtis Samuel is probably priced about appropriately. I think Mike Geseki will be priced about forty-two hundred cents. So that's forty-seven hundred in salary saved. I think Marvin Mims will be priced about twelve hundred higher, so that's fifty-nine hundred in salary saved. And I think the Texans' defense should be priced at about twenty-six hundred, so that's sixty-four hundred in salary saved. So sixty-three hundred, sixty-four hundred in salary saved from where I think these guys will be priced a few weeks from now. So that gives me a what I believe is a fifty-k roster for 43.7k. What's cool about that is then we can move this over to the main slate where we actually have 50k to work with and recognize that there are guys we can find this week who really unlock a lot of salary for us and allow us to get a lot more upside than we will necessarily be able to get some of these other weeks on the season. So with that, we will call the week one special a wrap I appreciate you hanging out throughout this whole segment. Hopefully it was beneficial for you and for your rosters for this week. With that, I will see you on the site throughout the weekend. And I'll see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday.